Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 321. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 321 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, Dave Way. Dave has a list of credits a mile long. It will make your head spin. I'm just going to start naming stuff here off, off of his credit list. So what do we got? We got Fiona Apple, Gwen Stefani, Weird Al Yankovic, Michael Jackson, John Doe, of course, from X-Fame, Macy Gray, Christina Aguilera, Enrique Iglesias, Ringo Starr, Andrew W.K., Cheryl Crow, Lionel Richie. Mick Jagger. All right, you get the point. Dave's been busy, and I haven't even named anybody past the 2000s yet. If I go into the 90s, you know, we get into Whitney Houston and the Spice Girls. Yeah, this is not Dave's first rodeo by any stretch. He has definitely been at this a very long time, and he's got a great perspective, and he's got a lot to tell. So I'm super excited to have him on. He comes to us by way of our good friend and former WCA guest, Steve Genowick. Yeah, there's nothing like a a good referral, especially when you get a text from Steve saying, have you had Dave way on yet? And you say no, and then the next thing you know, you've got an email from Steve and Dave, and it it all works out. So that's good news for all of us because we all get to hear the story. So I'm very excited to have him on. Dave Way coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about The Purge. Okay, so I'm not talking about the movie The Purge. Nope. I am really just uh, covertly sneaking another conversation about minimalism, audio minimalism, cleaning up and having just the stuff that you need around you. So yes, this is a, a slight continuation on that talk and here's how it goes. So as I have mentioned in the last few episodes that are closest to this one, I am in the process of just getting rid of stuff, looking around, going a little COVID crazy thinking, okay, well, I need to get rid of that. I don't use that. I haven't used that in, you know, what, two years, got to get rid of that. And it's going well. It's going uh, quite well, actually. And once you kind of clean out one box, one shelf, one room, then it continues on. And you start to discover things that you realize, okay, I can give this away, this I can sell, this I can throw away, this I can recycle. And before you know it, you have clean surfaces, open space, you have the tools that you value the most around you. And then once you get to that point, it gets you to really reconsider what it is you are going to buy in the future. It will make you consider your purchases more carefully. And just in the last week alone, I have sold off some stuff. I've, you know, sold off about $2,000 worth of stuff very rapidly, which was great. You may have recalled in a previous episode, I bought this Fostex quarter inch eight track to do some transfers of my old band the sextants and that potentially could have turned into a a giant money pit i bought the machine inexpensively i put much more money into getting it repaired and prepared for doing these transfers so all in all i spent you know about a little over 675 dollars on it and as it turns out i sold it to a friend who needed uh, access to that machine so i made my money back broke even that's a good thing 
sold some mics, some that I bought that I just, you know, just never use anymore. And, and so long story short, yes, it's been a great thing. Studio is clean. I know that's a, that's a great thing to report. And so I want to encourage you to look at your own situation. It's amazing what we carry around with us for sentimental reasons. You know, and I'm talking about gear here. I'm talking about audio gear, gear that we carry around because uh, we want to help somebody out someday with something, with something that we may not even use day to day. I have some stuff in my shed here uh, uh, at our house. There's a, you know, there's a like a Mackie mixer out there. Perfectly good. Works, you know, works great. Does its job as they always do. And, I, you know, I just don't use it. So I caught myself. I was like, you know, I got to get rid of that. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. Well, what if I do something where I need an extra four mic pre's or somebody needs to borrow a mixer or maybe there's a school function. Maybe I, maybe the school needs to, to borrow, you know, one of the kids' schools. And I was like, what are you doing? You really are rationalizing holding on to something on the slight chance somebody might need a Mackie mixer and they're going to call you up specifically? Where does that come from? I can objectively say it comes from a good place. I want to help people out. But really, at the end of the day, that I just think that holding on to that thing is ridiculous. So I've got to put that in the pile. And some of this stuff, you know, you think, well, that's really a useful item. Yeah, it is useful. But when you haven't used it in, I don't know, trying to think of the last time I used it. Okay, okay, I take it back. I did use it a year ago, but that was like, that was a real one-off because prior to that, I hadn't used it for five years. So, you know, when you get in these positions in recording situations, I know that all of you know that, you know, you work with what you have. And it's kind of a rarity that I would catch myself again in that position where I'd think, oh, we'll, we'll just use that Mackie mixer that's been sitting in the shed for five years, right? So I'm gonna get rid of it, I swear. Well. Let me just conclude all this by saying this journey of paring down and getting, getting getting your life focused on the gear that you use, the things that you use. I mean, we are talking about gear, but we're also talking about just all the uh, extraneous stuff that comes with that gear. Music stands, cables, all of you would be so like proud of me at the same time, completely mortified. I gave a box of cables away that was filled with D subs, some Mogami uh, 16 and 24 pair cable. I think some of you would have said, oh man, you could sell that. But some of this stuff, it's just difficult to sell. It may sit up on, uh, you know, reverb.com or eBay for uh, a year or more. At that point, it sits in your life for another year and you could reclaim that space. And then when you don't end up buying more stuff and you're, you're, you're just focused on what you're using, then when you do need something, you really, really think it through. And then the beautiful consequence out of all of this is, is you're just not, not spending money on ridiculous things all the time. I have uh, caught myself a few times during this process, you know, perusing places, thinking, oh, maybe I need a new lamp. I don't need a new lamp. I can see perfectly fine in here. There's lamps in here. There's plenty of light. You know, it's stuff like that. You start to think, okay, well, I don't need that. So therefore that's money saved. That's money that could be placed in retirement. That's money that could be earning interest somewhere. Maybe you put it in the stock market. I don't know. I'm not a financial genius, but I do know when I have more money versus when I do not have more money. So that's it. I'm not trying to pound this into your head. I'm just sharing the journey here of what's occurring and I'm really enjoying the process and I'm really enjoying the results. You may enjoy it as well. You may not, I don't know. 
But I'm going to encourage you to check it out. So you could start with those guys, The Minimalists. You could check out Marie Kondo. I think she's still on Netflix. If not, I'm sure you could find her on YouTube. There's all kinds of resources out there for cleaning your space, organizing your space, getting rid of your stuff, all that kind of stuff. And then when you apply it to our pro audio world, man, really can make a huge difference and uh, keep you focused on what's most important in your audio practice. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Dave Way, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. You come to us by our mutual friend and former WCA guest, Steve Jenowick, who yes. longtime listener of the show, great guy. It was great. He was texting me the other day, and he says, have you had Dave Way on yet? He's sitting right next to me. 
or something like that. I think we were having tacos at the moment. Yeah. Oh, were you? Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you guys were working. <laughs> well, yeah, we were on our little little break, our excursion out into the world beyond the four walls. Yeah. Ah, uh, you were working on tacos. Yeah, exactly. Well, so tell me a bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up and siblings, etc.? What was life like in the early days for you? The early days for me were born in Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Was only there till I was about four, almost five, four and a half years old. Born in the early 60s. And, and at that time, Long Island was, it was the country where people who lived in the city could now go and buy a house and raise a family. So that's what my parents did. We moved out to a spot called Smithtown, which is right in the middle of Long Island on what was a farm just a couple of years prior. It was just like your typical suburban new development, specifically for young families with maybe one or two new kids. And that's that's what we were. We were at that point three, and we remained three kids. It was, I'm the oldest. My brother is two years younger than me, and my sister is five years younger than me. So my sister had just been born when we moved out there. And it was very typical suburban upbringing. We used to wake up in the morning when school was out, we'd have breakfast, we'd make our cereal, read the cereal box, go outside, play baseball, and ride our bikes until dinner time when either somebody would yell, David, <laughs> dinner. <laughs> that was your, your dinner bell call. And you'd come in and have dinner. And if it was summer, you went out again after dinner until it was dark. When I think of it now as a parent, it was great, but you know, just letting your kids go out into the world, we would get in so much trouble. And it was, it was crazy. We lived by the railroad tracks, and so we would spend time just hanging out at the railroad tracks. We had to cross the railroad tracks every day. To, we would walk to school. We would take the shortcut, which was through the railroad tracks and the apple farm. And it was, <laughs> I'm remembering all this stuff. The guy who owned the apple farm didn't like that the kids would go to school through his farm property. And of course, when you're 11 years old or whatever, the story of what he would do if he would find you was so big in our minds, you know, that he had guns and he shot a kid that was, you know, it was just, it was like, it was like watching Stand By Me or something, you know what I mean? You got all your possibilities of what could happen. You know, the kids are going to either get hit by a train or shot by the guy who runs or the Or run over farm. by the railroad train. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was an adventure. Was school banned part of your upbringing? Not really. The first thing that I did that was in any way musical, I took up trombone in third grade. Now, I didn't want to play trombone. I wanted to play drums, but my dad didn't want me to play drums. I, I never understood why, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, he thought trombone might be better. So yeah, I, I started on trombone. Before that, I don't know if it was before that, it's probably around the same time. I remember my aunt was a nun and they would get contributions to the church and stuff. And for some reason, one day she brought over a guitar, an electric guitar. Now I know it was a silver tone, the one with the guitars inside the, the, the case with the amp and the speaker. I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. So she gave it to us because my dad was a singer and I don't know, she just thought maybe he wants a guitar. <laughs> she, you know, <laughs> my dad didn't play guitar. So here we had this useless but beautiful silver tone black guitar in a guitar case. I'm guessing I was about eight years old. 
And I just loved to pick it up and pretend I was the Beatles because the one album that I had, well, I didn't have it, but my dad had it that I listened to was Meet the Beatles. So I would just put it on and pretend I was a Beatle. And then there was another kid down the block, Dave Wyman, who played drums. And he was a year or two older than me. I think he was two years older than me. And he was in the band and stuff. And so he was like more serious about music. So I used to go down to Dave's house with my guitar and meet the Beatles. And we'd put it on and just freak out and pretend we were the Beatles. And when we were done, maybe his mom would make us a sandwich in our intermission. And it was like, okay, good rehearsal. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Like we were going somewhere. But I did, I played trombone for a minute and I didn't really like it. So I didn't really start playing an instrument until, oh, I guess I was about 12, maybe. I took piano lessons from the guy down the street and I enjoyed that. What was cool about it was I hated doing the usual John Thompson's little stupid songs that you had to play when you were a beginner and learning how to read. And they start you off by learning how to read. And I just wanted to play Beatles songs. So I was kind of ready to quit because I was fed up with learning these little nursery rhymes. And my teacher said, what do you want to play? I said, I want to play Beatles songs. So he said, "Okay, we can do that. And he started to teach me chords. He pulled out piece of sheet music like real sheet music that was just a lead sheet with the melody and the chords and the lyrics and he showed me how to play any major chord because I kind of knew the notes pretty much at that point so he just gave me the formula well okay if it says F then you start with F and then you go up three more (laughs) for a minor third and four for a major third so he showed me the formula to figure out chords and then I just started to learn them. And I already knew the song, so I kind of knew what the rhythm should be. And so that got me hooked. And then I spent many years just playing chords, basically, and and then learning chords and then started writing songs with chords that I learned and stuff. Hmm. Then I saw Beatlemania and wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And he also happened to teach guitar, which I knew because I would see he had this beautiful SG that I didn't know it was an SG at the time, but I remember what it looked like. So... I asked him if he could teach me guitar too. And I think it very quickly became just guitar only. I kind of gave up the piano because I knew it all by then. Oh yeah, you were an expert. I was an expert. (laughs) I knew all the Beatles songs. (laughs) I knew all the seventh chords and yeah. Having had piano at first was very useful because I was just doing the same thing, but now learning new patterns on guitars. But I just wanted to learn the chords really. So the first band I was in, we were just getting into like Southern rock at the time, which was like Leonard Skinner and the Outlaws and Molly Hatchet and all this stuff in the mid 70s. So this is 76 or something like that. So I'm probably 13. I was playing guitar, learning like Sweet Home Alabama and all those cut your teeth songs. Is there a point at which you became aware of the act of recording and started to become fascinated by it? Absolutely. My dad had those little cassette recorders. I don't remember what brand it was, but just a little cassette recorder where it had a built-in mic. I think it was battery operated, so you could bring it around anywhere. And I used to just love recording stuff with this thing. And I would record Star Trek episodes. It wasn't really recording too much music because it didn't sound good if you recorded the band on it. But I just, I remember just leaving the cassette recorder in the room 
for an hour or half an hour, however long the tape would let it record for. And I would record whatever was going on in that room when I wasn't in it. And then I'd go back and listen to it to see what happened and hear what happened. I just loved the sound of life happening through this warped media, <laughs> uh, the sound of the cassettes. There's something about it that I just thought was really cool. And then one of the bands I was in, this guitar player, when I went to his house for the first time, I w walked in his basement and he had already kind of set up his basement like a studio and he had a little Radio Shack mixer, four channel mixer, and this Sony quarter inch mono reel to reel tape recorder. He had a mic on his piano and a vocal mic. He had a couple of other mics that for this recording that we were gonna do, I think we put one on the guitar there was no bass. It was just guitar, piano, and drums. And we played the Eagles' Best of My Love. And when I heard it played back, I just thought it sounded amazing. All of a sudden, that's it. That sounds like a record. That sounds like the real thing. And maybe it was just the sound of quarter-inch tape. And I don't even know what speed it was, probably seven and a half. But it just had that silky, professional sound to it that... I thought, we're it. This is it. No, it's the studio and us are <laughs> a match made in heaven. So we started rehearsing at my house after that. And I told the guy, bring your quarter inch tape recorder. We'll start. And then when rehearsal was over, we'd leave everything set up. And I'd say, well, just leave the tape recorder here. Just, you know, next time we're. <laughs> so, uh <-huh. laughs> so I started to get pretty good on the tape recorder. And then that evolved into bouncing back and forth between that tape recorder and a cassette machine. And pretty soon we had, had like a more professional mixer. And so I really started dabbling in the recording aspect of recording whatever we were doing. We would write songs and make recordings of them and stuff. And yeah, so the band and the recording, we were learning both at the same time. When you were done playing a song, were you anxious to get up and quickly rewind it and, and listen back just because you wanted to hear what it sounded like? Yeah, yeah, there was definitely, because I think maybe that first time hearing it, I expected it to sound like magic, like way better than we actually were. <laughs> so I knew if, if we played it pretty good, it would sound even better when we played it back. I still hope that happens these days, you know. Was there a point at which the interest in recording started to overtake your interest as a player? Yeah, I guess probably about after high school when you have to start figuring out what am I going to do? I have to get a job. What am I what's my job going to be? In high school, it was baseball player or rock musician. And I think the baseball player part, I was actually pretty good at baseball and I did really want to be a, a baseball player, but in my senior year of high school at a time when I thought, okay, this is my year. I was a pitcher and I kind of had hopes of having scouts coming to see me and getting offers to play in college and stuff. And I think my second game of my senior year, ironically, I'd just written a song and I had come back from baseball practice and I still had my baseball socks on. And one of the guys in the band had come over after school and I said, I got to show you this song that I just wrote. And I ran upstairs to get my guitar and I come down the stairs too fast on these slippery linoleum covers that we had on the stairs. And I completely wiped out and I broke my ankle. And oh. so my baseball career was over at that point. <laughs> it was kind of ironic that it happened with a song and a guitar in my hand. Wow. So 
my baseball hopes kind of went out the window senior year. And then I kind of realized, like, I'm not good enough to be a performer, like a singer and a front man. And maybe I could be in a band, but that's really hard. And it took me a couple of years to figure it out. But at one point, I don't know what magazines, at the back of some like Rolling Stone or something, there was a place called Five Towns College on Long Island, and they offered recording classes. And I saw that and thought, oh, you can actually learn this in school. That's pretty cool. And it was in the back of my mind. I went to college one year, one semester, right after high school at Tulane in New Orleans. And I had been studying civil engineering for some reason, mainly because I liked architecture in high school. But anyway, I realized very quickly once I got down there with all these heavy math and science classes that this is not what I wanted to do. And with that idea of Five Towns College in the back of my head, I think I thought maybe that's what I want to do, be a studio guy, be an engineer. And I called my parents at one point just before Thanksgiving break and told them, I do not want to come back here. I think I want to be a recording engineer. Their first question was, well, can you get a degree in that? And I said, I don't know, but we'll look into it. So basically I came back, took a year off, figured out that that's what I wanted to do. And I applied uh, and got accepted at Berkeley College of Music, hmm. which was just at the time, I think it's first year of having this recording production program. And so when I applied and when I went there the next year, it was the second year of that program. And that, as we know now, was the beginning of whatever you want to call it, the recording education boom. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, I think Berkeley and maybe one other school were the only ones, particularly where you could get a degree. But then they just started popping up everywhere. And now every college has a recording program. How did you do there? And what did you, how did you find the program? You know what? Once, once I got to Berkeley, I just said to myself, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. And it really turned out perfectly for me because the thing that impressed me the most once I got settled in was how serious these other guys were taking this stuff. And it wasn't just the recording program guys. It was the musicians, the guys in the dorms. My roommate in particular was very serious about it. And he was an amazing musician, composer, piano player. And he was like light years ahead of me as far as musical ability and, and knowledge. And I was very inspired. This guy would practice for five hours a day. And I never practiced. I would play. Maybe I would play a couple hours a day, but I wouldn't practice and sit there and play Rachmaninoff and stuff. And everybody, it seemed, was that dedicated and that serious about it. So that just kind of brought my game up. And I really wanted to be like that and started being inspired by all these great musicians around and their dedication to it. And also, there was no girls at Berkeley. I mean, I think there was like 10 girls in the whole school when we were there. So you weren't distracted by girls. <laughs> and it was freezing cold or in Boston. We didn't have any money. So there was no fraternities or any of that kind of stuff. So there was nothing to do but practice and smoke weed. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what we did. <laughs> but I took it really seriously. And then in particular, the recording part of it. And I just thought that I was so sure that this is what I wanted to do. And I already kind of knew a little bit. I remember being very frustrated the first year because all the classes 
were theory classes. Some of them were in the studio, but you didn't actually get to touch any of the gear or, or use any of it. Hmm. So I was so chomping at the bit to like put up a fader and listen to something come up and, and hear, hear reverbs and play with EQs and stuff. But that came soon enough. And I really just dedicated every minute that I had to record. We would record in our room. I had at that time, I was going back and forth between those two tape recorders. That's what I brought there. But then I got a Tascam Porta Studio, got four tracks. And my last year, I think I had saved up and gotten an eight track quarter inch tape recorder, Fostex, and a little Yamaha mixer. And we would record demos and record bands. And I would record anything for $30. I would record a song for you. I'd go to your rehearsal in one of the Berkeley practice rooms and bring my Porta studio and mics and record an hour or two hours and then go back to the dorm and mix it. Spend like eight hours or something like recording and mixing something for 30 bucks, whatever. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Did you graduate from the program? Mm-hmm. I have a picture of Phil Ramone, who was our mm. keynote speaker at graduation. Yeah, I just thought that was super cool because I very much knew who Phil Ramone was and, and yeah. admired him. So, yeah. What happened after after school? Did you stay on the East Coast for a period of time or how soon did you come out to California? Yeah, well, so, you know, still living in New York. And at that time, I had a girlfriend back on Long Island. So when I graduated, there were some guys who were thinking about staying in Boston, which had a very cool music scene. And it was like, you know, the cars were really big at the time and their studio, Synchrosound, was like everybody had heard. We never went there, but there was this big folklorish status to Synchrosound. And so some guys would say, no, I'm going to stay here in Boston. And But in my mind, I thought, well, look, if you go to New York and you work your way up, because it's all about getting your big break somehow. And in New York, if you get a big break there, then it's more likely to be a big break as opposed to a break in Boston. So I don't know. I just thought bigger pond, bigger fish, whatever. Plus, you know, I lived in New York and I thought, well, there's so many great studios in New York. So I will try to get a gig in New York. And I applied at the Hit Factory and got a job there as a runner and lived on Staten Island, which was not a, in a way it worked out in my favor i think because it was so bad that i never wanted to go back home because it would take like three hours to get from midtown manhattan to my house in staten island and i would have to be back in like eight hours so when i was working first at the hit factory and then another studio called soundworks particularly at soundworks where they had a couch that i could just sleep on and i was actually an assistant and was running sessions till three or four in the morning i would just stay at the studio hmm. and try and grab a shower from somebody in manhattan <laughs> let me in your house to just take a shower was there anybody in your life at that point that was a mentor to the process of recording to the music industry as a whole well there were so many great engineers and and mixers at the hit factory on any given day there was bob clear mountain mm. chris and tom lord algae maybe roy halley and paul simon were upstairs eric thorngren who was like a big guy at the time was making records there all the time these guys were like right there and you'd see them and, and you'd know what records they were working on and you'd hear them when you walk by in the hallway. Bruce Springsteen's there every day. Keith Richards and Billy Joel and Cindy Lauper, all these big, huge acts 
that was like inspiring. I wasn't yet really getting into the studio as an assistant. I was at the Hit Factory for a year, and at the end, I had just started getting into the studio, and then I got fired for some crazy misunderstanding. But I ended up going across the street to Soundworks, which was right underneath Studio 54, right across the street from Hit Factory. And they did a lot of dance remixes, which in the 80s were everywhere. Every song that got released as a single would have a remix, 12-inch remixes, which were made for the clubs. And they would usually do a remixed version of the single. And that would maybe get played on the radio or get used in the video instead of the album version if they thought it was better or that it was going to just jumpstart the song. If it was like the fifth single off of an album and people had heard the original version off the album for months at that point, they were like, well, we need to use this remix version to get people excited about it again. But these were like big artists like Madonna and Janet Jackson and whoever so this got me into the dance remix world, which at the Hit Factory, I didn't really know that wasn't really being done there. But this was being done pretty much every day of the week at Soundworks. And I quickly found really cool, even though I wasn't really into dance music or R&B, there was a lot of R&B there also. I just thought it was so cool how you could take a four minute song on the console with all the automation and just doing all these overdubs to make it into a an eight-minute dub mix that would be a whole new version of the song. You just rearrange it completely. So the idea that the mixer had all this power in the arrangement really made me want to just be a mixer. And I had so many mixers to learn from. Some of these guys were just so great. In New York, there was a guy named Michael Hutchinson and Steve Peck and Bob Rosa. These guys were just doing this Every week, there would be a, a new remix. I learned so much. And then I started working. One of the clients was this guy, Teddy Riley, who was a producer, writer, artist. And he was like the new hot shit. And I started working there just at the time when he was starting to take off. I think Bobby Brown's My Prerogative was his big hit at that moment. Hmm. And I just remember being out in the world and hearing that song all the time and thinking, yeah, we, we did that at our studio. I'm working with that guy. And so within less than a year, I started working exclusively with Teddy Riley. Hmm. I just one day, the guy who had been working with him, who was the assistant at Soundworks before me, and that's how I got the job there, was when he started working with Teddy Riley, he couldn't be a full-time assistant anymore. So they needed a new assistant. I got that job. Now, that guy had been working so much that he just needed a vacation and he went on vacation for a week. But Teddy wasn't taking a vacation because I was the assistant right there. He said, you want to do this remix on Saturday? And I said, absolutely. And so it was a band called Soul to Soul. It was a song called Keep On Moving, which was a big hit already. And so we were doing a remix for that. And that was the first thing I did with Teddy Riley as the first engineer, like from soup to nuts. And... I just kept working with him after that for a couple of years. It's funny how that same scenario plays out time and time again. Somebody takes a vacation, something happens, a vacancy opens up, you step in. There's always somebody right behind you ready to steal yeah. your gig. Yeah. Were you surviving? You know what? At that time, I was making what I thought was really good money because I worked over 100 hours a week many times. I would work easily 80 hours a week. Sometimes I remember one time I worked, I think, almost 120 hours. I would never go home. And the sessions would go from 10 in the morning until 
11 in the morning the next day, they'd go 24 hours. So I didn't sleep much. I never went home. I would get paid. I think I got a little more for overtime. So after whatever, I think 60 hours or something like that, I would get paid more for the overtime stuff. So in my mind, I was like making bank. <laughs> and then when I started to become the first engineer, then I thought, wow, this is, I'm a rich guy now. <laughs> you know, I was probably making 600 bucks a week or something like that. And I just couldn't fathom spending that much. Just an observation, very similar stories in your early days to a lot of engineers where it's just like you're working an unbelievable amount of hours. And I wonder if you take the high interest and passion in recording with the opportunity to work and you seize on it, Whereas, can you imagine if being in the same position, working at Home Depot and saying, oh man, <laughs> I want to work a hundred hours a oh, week. Is, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll sleep in the warehouse. I'll, I'll be here in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Give me more. Yeah. <laughs> I think it all boils down to that passion. Well, definitely at that age, that's all I cared about. It was really all I thought about whenever I was going back home, taking the three hour trip back and forth. I had headphones on listening to music and reading SSL manuals and figuring out gear and stuff. That was kind of a holdover, I think, from my Berkeley years because that's how I was at Berkeley. I just was not taking a minute to snooze on anything. You know, I just really was putting everything into it. And at that age, there was nothing else to do. That's all I was doing was working. And I had a girlfriend, but I didn't see her all that much. And like I said, Staten Island, going back to Staten Island wasn't something that I really even wanted to do. So I was just in it. Like I said, 100 hours a week. And I'm glad because I remember when we were in college at, at Berkeley and some of the teachers who would come to teach, we had great speakers come and visit and talk. And I can't remember who it was who said it, but you know, at some point they said, look, if you're here and this is what you want to do, and I tell you all this stuff about how hard it is, and you hear that and think, oh, that sounds too hard. I don't want to do it. Then you were never meant to be able to do this because the only guys who are going to make it are the guys who don't care what anybody says. You're just going to do it no matter what, because that's what you want to do. You, you have to have that passion for it. I remember at one point a teacher said, Look, only 2% of you guys, and I don't know if he was making up the number or what, but he said 2% of you guys in this room are actually going to make a living in music. And there was like, whatever, 20, 30 of us in the class. I remember looking around at these other guys thinking, oh, who's, and it's like, I, I know I'm going to be one of them, but <laughs> who are the other guys, you know? <laughs> Where do you think that drive comes from, from you? Was there something in your upbringing that caused that focus, that that love of, of it all? I guess in a lot of ways, it's just a competitiveness that you get. Maybe I got it from playing baseball and sports. I don't know. But at that age, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. So I, I remember when I got to Berkeley, I thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. Finally, I realized this is it. This is the path I want to be on. I'm in the right place now. Whereas before that, I was from high school to about I had about two or maybe three years off from high school before I got to Berkeley. So for those couple of years, I felt like I was just lost and I didn't know what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. And I think that's a common feeling for most people. Like all of a sudden at 18, you know, you graduate college and all of a sudden you feel like you're supposed to know what you're going to do and just start doing it. And I didn't know. And it took a couple of years of doing things that you think you might be interested in. And then you realize, no, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be, this is, this doesn't feel right. I don't want to be here. And as long as you've got options and you're not stuck 
in doing something that you don't want to do, which thankfully I, I was, if I didn't want to do something, I could say, let's try something else. Some people, you know, we don't always have that luxury, but thankfully I did. And, and until I found that match where it felt right, some people know it from the time they're eight years old. Performers, I know plenty of them, just never saw themselves doing anything else other than performing. Well, and you, you had, fortunately or, or unfortunately, your accident tripping and breaking your ankle, it yeah. kind of removed that option from your plate. Yeah. I mean, I, I, before that, there definitely was a two-sided thing, like, well, which do I want more? You know, and I remember my, my baseball coach confronting me and said, you know, you got to figure out if you want to do this or not, or if you want to go out in there and play your music, or if you want to take this seriously. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know, which one do I want more? Because I, I do want the music thing, but I really do want to be a baseball player. But I always felt like I didn't really know yet. And yeah, you're right. The decision was kind of made for me when I fell down the stairs. <laughs> Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What significant things happened on the East Coast that you remember that really lessons learned or victorious moments or, or moments of failure even? You know what? I have a strong memory of when I got fired at the Hit Factory, which I said was like this crazy misunderstanding. And I went in to get my last check and I was coming down the stairs onto 54th Street. I walked out the door and I bumped into this guy named Reiner who had been a tech at the hit factory up until whatever, uh, you know, a year before that, less, less than that, a couple of months before that. And he had gotten fired. I ran into him and he said, oh, Dave, how are you doing? Good. I said, I'm, well, I'm actually not very good. I just got fired. He's like, oh, that's too bad. Well, don't worry about it. I got, you know, look, we're looking for someone at Soundworks. We need a new assistant. Come over. I put a good word in for you. So the next week I went in and got the gig at Soundworks and I remember 
years later thinking that if I had walked down that staircase two minutes later, Reiner would have walked past and I wouldn't have bumped into him and I wouldn't have gotten the gig at Soundworks and I never would have started working with Teddy Riley and I never would have come out to California to work with Michael Jackson where I met my wife, who I'm still married to now almost 30 years later and have two beautiful kids with. You know what I mean? It's like my whole life took this path when I walked down and bumped into Reiner on a Saturday afternoon in whatever year that was. If it had been a minute later, who knows what would have happened. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So I think when you when you ask about it, is there a moment? It's like there's all these moments that we don't even really know about or think about in those terms that put you on a path that you had no idea you were going to go down. And I'm thankful that I bumped into Reiner. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I wonder how different your life would have been had you not bumped into him. Yeah, I have no idea. It might have been miserable. There's no there's no telling. Hmm. Who knows? Well, so did you experience success on the East Coast before you came to California? Yeah, well, like I said, I started working with Teddy Riley at a time when he was just blowing up. And hmm. so as soon as I started becoming his main guy, I was working on songs that were going to get a big push from the record labels, and they a lot of them became hits. I was even lucky enough, Teddy, we had a couple of big hits with, well, his band called Guy. They just finished their first album, which was a big hit, and it kind of introduced this new style called New Jack Swing. Mm -hmm. And that was catching on like wildfire. And then he would do all these remixes of other artists. So he was a the hot producer at the time in, in R&B in particular. So ultimately, I started getting all these hit records working with Teddy, like I had my name on them and they were getting played on the radio and even got to write some songs with Teddy because he was very much a collaborative songwriter. So he would like get the track going and then he had guys that he would say, come in and figure out some stuff to put on top of this. And one day we were working on a track and there was nobody else. It was three o'clock in the morning and he said, we need lyrics for this because we're going to do the session the next day. I said, okay. And it was for this boy group called High Five and... This was going to be their first song. They had just gotten signed to Zamba, which was Jive Records. So he started, he just told me what the hook of the song was. He had an idea of what the chorus was going to be. Go ahead, fill out the rest of it. And the track was just playing because he was still working on the track. And so I'm just sitting there and an hour or two later, I was like, okay, I got something. And I think I probably just kind of sang it for him. <laughs> if anybody knows me, I'm a horrible singer. But he got the idea. He was like, all right, cool. And then the next day, one of his other songwriters, singer collaborators came in and made my melody sound even cooler and changed a couple of things. And that song ended up being a number one record. So all of a sudden, I was like a, a writer and had a number one record. I was like, I don't even know how this happens. And it was on the radio. And just at that time, actually, maybe it hadn't even come out yet, we got the call to come out to work with Michael Jackson in Los Angeles. So I came out here, and I remember it was when we were in L.A. that that song got to number one, and I was hearing it on the radio and in the clubs and stuff like that. So I, I had success in in New York, and when I came out to L.A. to work on Michael Jackson, we were here for eight months and not working all that time, but over, over that long stretch. And in between working on Michael, I was getting calls to work with other people while I was here in LA. So I started to have work, you know, because we had hits and stuff. 
Teddy was at the time building his studio in Virginia Beach. And I think he was expecting that I would go to Virginia with him. But I came out to LA and A, it was January and I was able to go like play golf and (laughs) it was beautiful. (laughs) There's this beautiful girl that ended up being my wife. She was working at the desk, so that was a, a reason to want to stick around. And I and I was getting all this work, and I was like, it was kind of cool that I was a New York guy now in L.A., because at the time there was definitely a difference in sound between New York and L.A., or, I don't know, approach or whatever. I, I think that's true. So I was getting a lot of work. So I just decided I'm going to stick around here, see how it goes, and never went back. It's interesting. I wonder how you felt about the music you were working on. I mean, we're talking about a kid that grew up listening to the Beatles and Molly Hatchet. <laughs> and here you are with Teddy Riley. Yeah. So yeah. how did... How yeah, did- like, like I said, I I wasn't really a fan. of. I mean, I was a big Stevie Wonder fan. And I did, you know, and Marvin Gaye and Motown. I mean, I, it wasn't like I didn't know R&B, but I, that's like kind of like the classic R&B that I knew. I wasn't so hip on what was new in the 80s. For me at that time, R&B in the 80s was like Luther Vandross and people like that. Like there's just real singers. Which is funny because I just talked to Michael Brower who got right? his break with, yeah, right. with Luther with Vandross Luther. Yeah, in New right. York. Well, I mean, a lot of guys, I think Bob Clearmountain got started with Sheik and Nile Rogers, Sugar Hill Gang and stuff like that. And Chris Lord Algae the same way, doing like all these dance remixes and things that were kind of, that's part of what was going on in New York in particular. So it was kind of all new to me and I started learning about it, especially since a lot of what Teddy and other people were doing at that time, which was new, was not what Luther Vandross was doing, but they were taking samples. Samplers were a new thing at the time. And so what Teddy would do would take James Brown and whatever, old R&B records, the Bar Ks, whoever, and sample these little snippets and then have all these kick and snare and drum machine samples and stuff on the MPC-60. And he would make this new sound collage kind of sound that swung <laughs> like crazy and just, cut, you know, you couldn't help but dance to it. And it was so new and it sounded like noise, but it all made sense but it had surprises and it just had soul and feeling and this kind of spirit to it that was just infectious. And it was a celebratory sound, you know? It was just like, yeah, let's, James Brown would be screaming in the back. And this is before the lawsuits and everything that, you know, they hadn't figured out the legalities of this (laughs) stuff at that point. So it was the Wild West and it got tamped down, you know, a couple of years later when people started getting sued, I got sued by George Clinton, (laughs) but... Oh my gosh. Yeah, but for, I don't even remember what, it was for some song we wrote that he said we took a sample. So it was like new and that combined with the fact that the arrangements were really made on the console Mm. with automation, I loved it. I fell in love with it. I got really into it and it was new frontier kind of stuff. And I felt like people like Teddy and there were other, you know, there's a guy, Francois Kevorkian, who worked in the same building as Soundworks and he used to do a lot of mixing at Soundworks and I would assist for him sometimes. And he would be doing Depeche Mode Violator album, which was like groundbreaking sonically at the time, you know, and he was making all these cool records and other people coming in were equally inspired by this new sound that was going on. So... I got full on board. Tell me about 
working with Michael Jackson. What are the highlights of that? Well, certainly one of the highlights was just hearing Michael sing. I remember the first time before we started doing like any real vocals, we would just be playing the track because basically we came out to L.A. with a dat full of tracks that Teddy had worked on. And we would play them for Michael and he would just start getting ideas and singing ideas. And the first time he asked me to give him a 57 and he was in the, the back of the room, but literally just over my shoulder, singing ideas onto the multi-track for us to be able to get this down, this idea that he had. It might have been Jam. I can't remember what song it was, but it was like, wow, that's unmistakably Michael Jackson right over my shoulder here, you know, <laughs> singing. And he was so good as a singer, just really, certainly, the I think, the best singer I ever recorded. And I've gotten to record some really amazing, great singers. But one of the things that was impressive about Michael was he was completely dedicated and was living this stuff 24-7. But at the same time, he would not do a vocal, like a real vocal, until he was absolutely ready. And that meant like prepared, like he knew the lyrics, you know, wasn't reading them anymore, like he knew them by heart. And he had worked on the lyrics and got them to where he thought they were as good as they could be. And that he was in the state of mind that was going to enable him to give an amazing performance and that he would be ready to give it all. And so uh, there's a lot of times when like he would say he's going to come in and do a vocal and then he wouldn't show up or he'd say, I'm, I'm not ready. And it really at that point meant that he just, his state of mind wasn't ready to give it all because he would really give it all. And it was always amazing. I mean, he never he never sang badly. <laughs> Even when he, he was just coming up with ideas and when he would like double track or do harmonies and stuff, it was so spot on. All the breathing, his groove was perfect and he knew exactly what he was going to do. So it was kind of easy in a lot of ways, but he was a perfectionist for sure. And he would spend a lot of time comping the vocals and getting it perfect. Did you learn anything from him that stays with you to this day about making records? Well, it's funny because at that time with somebody like Michael Jackson, it was unlimited. You could do whatever you wanted, no matter how crazy the idea was or how much time it was going to take or how much money it was going to cost. There was no limitations as far as what was possible. So that really doesn't exist anymore. But I do remember that feeling of when we were trying to figure out what the song needed in Michael's mind, it could be anything. He could say, let's get Albert Einstein on this song and we could go dig up the corpse and, <laughs> and bring him back alive to life and bring him into the studio and have him say, genius, whatever, you know, it was unlimited. So, you know what I mean? Like there was this idea that everything is possible. Sadly, I don't. that's pretty hard to come by these days. It's certainly possible within a realm of, and the tools we have in the computer and Pro Tools and all the technological advances we've had enable us to have a very unlimited canvas. But this was a different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, outside of that and just the dedication that he had, I think in Michael's mind, it was always, we want to be number one. He wanted to be number one. He liked being number one. Every song that we were working on, he thought has to be a number one record. And he was just striving for like world domination. And granted, this was Michael at his peak. When we started working on this, his album before that was Bad, which was just a huge, huge album. Yeah. And 
Thriller was before that. So you believed it and <laughs> and you certainly knew it was possible. In evaluating yourself as an audio professional, producer, mixer, engineer, any combination, what do you think you bring to the table for people? Because your discography is huge. It's varied, like pretty wide. I mean, there's a big... Yeah. Jump between like John Doe and Christina Aguilera. So <laughs> Right, right. I love that. I remember when I started working with John Doe, he loved the fact that I had worked with the Spice Girls because it was like the complete opposite of, and, and I couldn't believe that he would, that wasn't a reason to not let me in the studio <laughs> because he knew what he does and I'm not going to change what he does, but he just thought that maybe some of this program stuff that I was part of might be good. And he knew that we had met before and we liked each other. So he thought, well, let's give this a, sh a shot, you know? And we just got together one day and I started coming up with some beats for him to put his songs down on. And it was just an EP. It was just kind of an experiment in a lot of ways, but it went well. So I kept working with him. But I love being able to jump between, like you said, I remember doing a Chris Bodie record and then a jazz record. And then the next week, right after that was done, doing an Andrew W.K. loud, obnoxious rock record. And then I would very easily jump into an R&B thing after that or some other crazy super pop project. I listen to lots of different kinds of music and I like certain aspects of almost everything. There's so much music out there. You spend your whole lifetime trying to absorb it. It's way too much. So I like being able to jump between genres. It's interesting, though, because somebody, they'll get pigeonholed. You do some rock right. records, you do some metal records. It's like you get a string of that, and then people just, oh, you're the metal dude, right? Right. Or you're, right. The, you're the pop guy. I mean, guy. I think some guys do like that. They really, really like one kind of thing, and they get really good at it. Yeah. And so you just tend to do it over and over again. And when you get really good at it, people will pay you a lot of money to keep doing it, especially if you have hits. But what ultimately seems to happen is that style of music, it just gets old after a while and something new comes up that replaces it as far as excitement goes. And then if you're not careful before you know it, everybody's going to that other thing and they're leaving you behind and you never got to show that you can do something else. Because I think it's true for a lot of people that they're not just a one trick pony, but the business tends to want to box you in and have you do whatever was successful, just do it over and over and over again. And I certainly at certain points have intentionally tried to break out from doing, like working with John Doe at a time when I was doing the Spice Girls or whatever R&B records I was probably doing at the time. I really wanted to work with John because I really admired him, but also it was a different kind of thing for me. And I knew that I could bring something to the table because I wasn't a huge X fan growing up on the East Coast because X was more of a West Coast thing, but I certainly knew of X and I was certainly a big fan of the punk rock scene in the in the late 70s and, and early 80s. That was really what I was into at the time. So for me, the idea to now, and, and John saying, go ahead, do some of what you do and I'll do my thing on top of it was a, a rarity. Hmm. And I welcomed the opportunity to do it. And I still, I look around for things like, like I, I haven't done very much country stuff and I haven't done, I love, I'm a huge jazz fan and I've done a couple of jazz things, but I'd love to do more jazz. As crazy as that is, because there's no money in jazz and there's, you know, but I love jazz music and jazz musicians in particular. 
I mean, it's that's really one of my favorite things to listen to. That's funny. I'm, I'm the same way. I have a very small but focused vinyl collection, and it's mostly like 50s, 60s jazz. Right. And I always think, man, that's that just seems so much easier to work with because all the onus is on the musician and they're doing their thing, whereas it's like, yeah, you don't have to create... Well, it's a completely different approach to making a Michael Jackson or a Spice Girls or Christina Aguilera, you know, some pop record. And that's what I like about it. And it takes a completely different skill set. What I like about doing all these different styles of music is they all require different approaches and having different tools and skill sets to make it work. Because like you said, the, the emphasis is now on letting the musicians do things. And if you try and superimpose too much on the engineering side of things, it screws it up. Mm -hmm. And that's true in all these different kinds of areas. I remember when I first started to get into actually mixing rock records coming from the R&B and dance records that I was doing, where in the R&B and dance world, it's all about the drums and the, the rhythm. And I played drums a little bit, and I kind of thought, probably wrongly, at the beginning of when I was doing some rock records, that the drums were just as important as they had been on these records that I had been making. And I quickly kind of realized, it's like, oh no, it's I really got to pay more attention to the guitars. The guitar and vocal are the, at the top of the chain, not the drums and the vocal. So... You just have to change your, your way of looking at things and hearing and oftentimes how you treat the audio. But a lot of it comes down to just having the right taste for what this music requires, what the, the artists are trying to convey. Just getting it, you know, I mean, getting it is like 90% of any recording gig that you have, just knowing what's right for this and hopefully instinctively knowing so that you don't do the wrong thing. I want to ask you a bit about the business side of it. Now, you've had some success fairly early on in your career. How was it managing the money, the business, and trying to keep your head about you as success was coming in and stay focused on the task at hand? Were there any stumbling blocks there for you? Well, I remember when I first started wrestling with this, it was like, you know, the idea that I need to get a manager, somebody who's going to take care of a lot of this stuff for me, particularly in the 90s when the music business was so full on, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the business side of it was just huge. Everybody had managers, drum programmers had managers and, and, and deals were made for everything, <laughs> you know, and you'd spend money on lawyers on all these deals for every aspect. So it kind of was ridiculous looking back at it. But that said, a manager... What I came to realize, because now I don't have a manager, I haven't had one in quite a few years. My wife basically helps me. But you really do need a, a manager who is going to represent you the way that you would want to represent yourself. And it took me a couple of managers to realize that part of it. It's a business relationship. The business part of things can often be hard because it's not cool. You don't really want to talk about it with, particularly with the artist, or it's it's just sometimes uncomfortable, or it's just not the way it's done, and so you you feel like you have to have a buffer, like a manager or a lawyer, to do all that business. But what I found was, after many years, was that my clients were actually 
happier to just talk to me about that stuff. And I was pretty good at it. I was pretty good at knowing how to negotiate what a fair deal would be for me and for them. And like a handshake was fine. Sometimes you needed a contract, but if you decided what the general terms were in a handshake or a phone call, that was fine. That was enough to get it done. Mm. And then I could have a contract drawn up. But I found that I was actually pretty good at it, which I don't know if that's common because A, sometimes you're just too busy to be dealing with that stuff. And that certainly happens. I just have to dedicate certain amounts of time to catch up on the business aspect of things. But I've gotten really good at balancing it. And certainly with, I've gotten good at reading where other people are at, clients are, and what their needs are, and what is going to work for both of us to make something happen, to make a project happen. You know, and it's a different yeah. landscape now than it was 20 years ago. And I, I got to say, I much prefer it the way it is now. <laughs> it's easier to really connect with clients and with artists. Like I feel so much more connected now to the artists that I work with than I did 20 years ago. Switching topics, you're talking to us from what you're calling the way station, your studio there. Yeah. Tell me about how that has played a role in the last several years and having a home home base that you can count on versus taking projects to outside studios, et cetera. Was it a challenging process to build that? I assume that's at your house. Yeah. For years, I, I just worked at studios around town. I had some of my favorites like Larrabee and I would spend a good time at Record Plant and mixing studios that had SSLs. That's where I generally stayed. But I would do tracking and stuff at other studios. But when my daughter, my first child was born, I thought that it might be a smart idea to build a studio at home because I had a room in this house that already was a studio, but I really wasn't utilizing it as one. I, you know, at that time, I, I remember very much thinking that my home was my sanctuary away from all the work. And so I'd be working at studios. And then when I came home, I don't want to think about work. You know, when I had this idea of making this a room where I could work and maybe not spend as much time out away from home to be with the family, I was afraid that I would find it difficult to balance the home life and the studio life. And I was concerned about it. I was certainly on the lookout to make sure that it doesn't. Now, I was very lucky that my wife managed a recording studio. She was the studio manager at Larrabee for years. And so she very much knew what the studio environment is like and projects. She knew what to expect. She, it wasn't going to be too many surprises. So I decided since like I worked at studios like Larrabee at the time, if I could build somewhat of a Larrabee-like environment here for me to mix, and, and I was doing mostly mixing, if I worked at home for a couple of months out of the year, it would be worth it. So I bought a used SSL, a 6000 E-series, which was kind of my favorite SSL console, a pretty small one, 48 channels. And it fit in here pretty good. And I so I, uh, you know, and I set it up with a Pro Tools rig, and which was kind of new at the time, and some of my favorite outboard gear, and started mixing some projects here. This was, I think, 2002, or maybe early 2003. And very soon after that, by 2004, it was very 
obvious that the music business had changed in a big way, Mm -hmm. that the budgets were coming way down, and this downloading thing in iTunes was changing things beyond what anybody had really thought was possible. So the budgets came way down, and I was now able to offer up my studio as part of my rate so that they didn't have to pay my rate and then pay for... Larrabee or Record Plant or wherever on top of that. And that became, I noticed, very attractive for people to know that it's only going to cost them this much per song, right? As opposed to, I'm going to charge this much per song, but it might take a day, it might take two days, it might, not knowing how much the studio bill was going to be because that was linked to how much time it would take. And you kind of don't always know how much time it's going to take. This way, I could just say, look, it's going to be part of my song rate. So no matter what, how much time it takes, it's going to cost the same. And that became very attractive to the labels. So very quickly, I realized also that I really liked working at my studio as opposed to working at other studios. And this fear I had of it imposing on my personal home life, I was able to balance it. I, I didn't see a problem there. Thankfully, again, because my wife understood how things worked. And one of the other things I think that makes a big difference is that when you come here to the way station, the studio is at the front of the property and almost every other home studio I've ever been to, the studio is somehow in the back or yeah. in the basement. or And so you have to go through the living quarters or the home area to get to the studio. And it, right off the bat there, there's an intrusion on the family. And I'm lucky that that doesn't happen here. As soon as people walk in the door, there's the studio and my wife and kids don't even know that there's clients. So that helps. That's a piece of advice for anybody looking at building a home studio. Try and put the studio at the front. <laughs> Is your studio a separate building from the house? No, it's it's actually connected, but you wouldn't really know it when you're in here. Mm. And it does feel like it's its own building. So I'm thankful for that. Did you have to put great cost into getting it to where you needed it to be? Aside from gear, but just structurally, Yeah, no, not really, because it was already built as a, as a studio. So a lot of that work had been done already, but I've certainly, over the years, put in lots of money and, and made changes, structural and certainly gear. But it never stops. I mean, I, I just recently upgraded the whole studio for Dolby Atmos mixing. Yeah, so I could that's see those, new, those speakers yeah. on your uh, ceiling there. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bunch of speakers in here now. And it's fantastic, and I love Atmos and this new frontier. I'm really, really enjoying it, and that's why I've been hanging out with Steve Jenowick so much. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I was, you've been hanging out a little too much with Steve Jenowick. Well, and getting... he's, he's he's the man. He knows the most, and so I've been picking his brain a ton, and he's been really generous in sharing some of the things he's discovered and keeping me away from some of the landmines and stuff. But it's a never-ending process. You know, the studio has changed a lot since 2002. At the time, it was pretty much mixing was all I was doing here. And so I I had a recording room, but it was mainly just to do a couple of overdubbed stuff. And occasionally I would record a band, but it wasn't ideal for that. And at, at one point I had another commercial studio called The Pass for about five or six years that I had at my disposal to track projects there and then bring them back here. But when we sold the pass, I didn't have that anymore. So I kind of reconfigured the studio here to really work for recording anything. So now I can record a good size band 
with isolation and nice headphones for everybody and all the instruments are all set up and ready to go. And so before lockdown, I was doing quite a bit of recording. Most of it's things that I'm producing, but other times just doing some overdubs for somebody's project or something. Gwen Stefani coming up to do a vocal or something like that. Mm. It's a never-ending tweaking process of making the studio better and better. And it feels really good right now. <laughs> Gotta say. Your career is comprised of working with some some great people. I mean, you mentioned Gwen Stefani, Macy Gray, Christina Aguilera, Fiona Apple. Great, great record, by the way, the, the bulk cutters record. But thanks. What is your approach in dealing with musicians, artists who are well known? And obviously you have to treat them as people. Have you seen others make mistakes in how they're interacting with a Christina Aguilera, a high profile artist yeah. like Michael Jackson? It's an interesting dynamic sometimes, and you're always getting the feel for it. You know, like with anybody you meet, you don't know them. But what happens when you're dealing with stars is you feel like you know them already because you've seen them on television and you know so much about them and they don't know anything about you other than that you're the guy behind the console. But some of them are really good at making you feel comfortable, like somebody like Ringo Starr, who's been famous probably longer than most anybody on the planet, certainly more famous than most anybody on the planet, is really good at making you feel comfortable. I've heard the same thing about Paul. I've never met Paul, but Mick Jagger I've found was the same way. Eric Clapton. They're just so used to having people starstruck when they see them, they know immediately how to diffuse it. Whereas younger artists, particularly if they've just come to fame, don't know how to deal with that yet. And they're still working it out. And oftentimes they're bugged by it because it can be really a pain in the ass to be super famous and not be able to just be your regular self, particularly when you're working, because that's your time away from fans and the audience and having to be on because you got to remember for these people, it's their job. And so you, you feel like you have to perform sometimes when you don't feel like it. You're just not in a good mood to do that. So they have to learn how to get good and turn it on and off. And when you're working, you want to turn it off. Mm -hmm. You want to be relaxed. You want to be yourself. Some artists never turn it off. <laughs> you know what I mean? There are some artists out there who like the adulation all the time. You can kind of figure that out pretty soon after you meet those ones. I don't know. You just get better. My default has always been to just treat them like normal people because mm -hmm. they are normal people and don't be starstruck. Try and just relate to them normal, but you'll have work to do and treat it like work and that you're there to help them with their vision, with their, you know, with what they're trying to do musically. And that seems to work well. I've certainly seen some egos get out of control, but I try and stay away from it. You know, yeah. I try not to feed into it. I don't know if there's... You just be yourself. Well, even like Michael Jackson was super famous. And I remember the first time seeing him, it was, it was by accident, actually. It was the night before we were supposed to start working. And I had gone down to the studio to get the lay of the land, so to speak. And the door opened and Michael walked in. He didn't know I was in there and he immediately started apologizing, thinking that he walked into my session. And I said, oh no, I'm actually working with you tomorrow. But I remember that first time seeing Michael in the room because Michael had a striking presence visually. Mm. And also he was just the most famous person in the world probably at the time. It was 
shocking, I guess is the word, or it just felt like, because it was also a surprise. It I wasn't prepared for it. Like all of a sudden the door opened and there he was. But he again was pretty good at once he felt comfortable making you feel normal. So after a week of that, I felt like we could just talk and he was normal. <laughs> you know, I guess there is that aspect to it of you have to become comfortable too, because yeah, that's a, a big part of it, I think, and that's why not being too much of a, a fan, even if you are, immediately puts them on guard, and that will make you then feel uncomfortable, and it'll just kind of be there. So to avoid that from the get go is, I think, the easiest way to just relate on a, a more honest level. It sounds like you do place a focus on your family. So my typical work-life balance questions that I ask guests, I'm already getting a sense from you that that's, that's something that is important to you and you, you pay attention to it. Is that, am I correct? Oh, absolutely. The best thing I ever did really was create the studio here where I could be home all the time. And these days I'll get out to another studio maybe three or four times a year. It's rare. I do like 95% of this stuff here. And now, almost 20 years later, I look at it and I can't even imagine how my life and family life would have changed if I had had to spend all this time away from home. Because, you know, my kids, they're a little bit older now, but particularly when they were really young, they just knew I was here. And even if I wasn't in the living room, they still knew that, oh, if there were an emergency or something, or just knowing that daddy's here, but he's, he's in the studio and maybe there's clients, maybe there's not. They're really good at leaving me alone. <laughs> and then I like to take, particularly when I'm mixing and there's no clients here, I can do what I want schedule-wise. And if I just want to go have lunch or go have dinner or watch a movie or whatever, I can. And I do. And I, I, it's a great way to keep my work stuff inspired because if I start to work so much that I'm just tired of the song I'm mixing or whatever and I just want to get a break... I just go in and there's no better inspiration for me than just hanging out with my kids and my family. So then I'd spend an hour or two, whatever, with them and come back and feel all refreshed and like ready to tackle the song again. So it's a good balance. And I'm fortunate, I think, that I get to do it that way. It's definitely helped my family life and my work life, being able to go back and forth as I see fit. Because sometimes, even if my studio was a block away, if I have to get in the car mm -hmm. and drive, just that little extra effort sometimes is just preventative from letting you go ahead with it. So thankfully, 30 steps <laughs> to my left is not too much of an impediment for me. I'm not that lazy yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it is interesting with COVID. I mean, what I love is, you know, I can be mixing something. I can walk out that door and meet one of my kids in the kitchen and have a little conversation about some school issue they're dealing with. And yeah. then they go back to it. I go back to it. I mean, my favorite part when my daughter's in college now, my son, obviously, he does his school from home. But I would just love when the kids would come home from school. And like I said, the studio is when you first walk through the door. So I have this big window where I'd see them coming home from school and they wave and maybe they take a look to see if there's any clients in here. And if there's no clients, they'll walk in and tell me about their day and hang out. And I love that. That's like my favorite part of the day is looking out my window. There's a hammock out there and just seeing like my daughter or there was a swing when they were little, you know, just hanging out and being outside the studio. 
That's great. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a website called DaveWay.com. I guess that covers most of what happens here at Way Station. Yeah, that's the place. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Oh, great. Cool. Well, Dave, great talking with you. At some point when this COVID thing goes away, I'll come down south from Northern California here. and Absolutely. That would be great. You and I in Genoa can go out and get tacos. Tacos and some whiskey, maybe. I'll, I'll be down there. I'll get on the plane now. <laughs> right on, right on. I look forward to that. Let's well, do it. Well, fantastic. Thanks for taking the time to Thank be with you, us Matt. today. And thanks for answering my questions. Great to meet you. Really great talking with you. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. All right. Will you take care? All right. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dave Way here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith there with his magical voice. If you like the show, leave a positive review on iTunes. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.